0: and welcome to this Buckhalter podcast. My name is Dylan Wiseman. I'm a shareholder with Buckhalter. I'm resident in our San Francisco and Sacramento offices. And for the last 23 years, uh, my practice has been exclusively trade secrets and employee mobility matters.
1: I'm Lisa Plow Fuller, and I'm an attorney with Buckhalter at the Sacramento office, and I specialize in commercial litigation as well as with an emphasis on trade secrets and
2: employee mobility matters. Um, I am Jackie Vu. I'm also an attorney here at Buckhalter's uh, Sacramento office. I am um, a commercial litigation litigator with um, an emphasis or my practice also focused on trade secret litigation and employment mobility matters as well. Great.
0: Thanks and welcome to our Buckhalter podcast today. I'm Dylan Wiseman.
1: I'm Lisa Plow And I'm Jackie Vu.
0: And today we're talking about uh, ways that a company can improve their odds in a trade secret litigation matter. So I want to talk a bit about just some basic fundamentals, uh, starting out with ways that a company can improve their agreement. So Jackie, do you have some opinions about that?
2: Um, I do. Well, you know... In handling some cases and working with you, Dylan, um, in our experience, we've encountered employers who have confidentiality agreements where the the, the trade secret or the confidential information in the agreement is, is sort of vague, um, where it just says the employee has a duty to protect all confidential information. But the question is, what does that mean? And so I think one of the a good practice for an employer to know is to really be specific in defining What confidential information means, what trade secret means, you know, and that would include customer lists, um, strategies, you know, pricing information, things like that. Because you want to be more specific because you don't, you know, at the end of the day, if there's a litigation and the employee's sitting there and they're saying, well, I didn't know, you know, the information that I was dealing with was a trade secret, you don't want to have to go there and, you know, argue what is a trade secret when you have this beautifully written agreement that's the, you know expressly defined there because
0: i'll tell you nobody remembers signing these agreements right Right. No, never it happens yeah. it's like they signed them in the beginning part of their employment and then the next time they see them is when they're sitting in a deposition right. right yeah so uh lisa as far as california and um confidentiality agreements can you discuss a little bit about the importance of that as it pertains to coming to compete well
1: <clears throat> so a lot of times uh There's covenants not to compete. And in California, there's departing employees and they think, oh, you know, the law is that non-competes in California are invalid in most cases. Um, However, what they don't realize is that there's another element, which is that all this confidential information and these trades are trade secrets. And therefore, even though they can't compete or even though they're permitted to compete, that they cannot take the trade secrets from their uh, employers. And so that's really important.
0: Yeah, we see a lot of that where people, I think, generally know that California is a right-to-work state. You can leave and go to a competitor the same day. uh, But at the same time, we take a very broad interpretation of what it means to protect information because you're basically free to do that. You can have your coffee at one place in the morning and then have happy hour with the competitors in the evening. Right. That's totally acceptable here in California. But the way that you exit and... um, the information that you may use or disclose is really important. And we take a very broad view of that. And kind of getting back to um, the, what one of the things I think that we would strongly recommend is that companies modify their existing uh, confidentiality agreements to reflect the the new changes under the Defend Trade Secrets Act. So Jackie, do you have a, um, you've dealt with that issue.
2: So, um, you know, under the Federal um, Defend Trade Secret Act, they—if um, an employee, or an employer, employee agreement does not have a whistleblowing provision in the agreement—you're not entitled to um, exemplary damages or attorney fees. And what that means is, the whistleblowing terms—it um, says that an employee would be protected if, or an employee would be protected in um, reporting a whistleblower or reporting a reporting another. Um, employee taking away a trade secret and they wouldn't be um, there would be no adverse employment action taken against them
0: yeah so basically that if they cooperate with uh, an investigation particularly if it's a federal investigation uh, and they have to disclose some trade secrets that information is protectable I'll tell you when I first saw that I thought it was just the most oddball thing that the federal government would require to be in agreement because I mean I've been doing this for over 20 years. I've never seen a situation where there's some whistleblower element, but but the consequences are so severe. If you don't have these required language of a whistleblower uh, provisions in your confidentiality agreement, you can't get your fees. So so Lisa, I think you could have a situation where you win, but your contract doesn't have it, and then what happens?
1: And then you're out of luck in regards to recovering all of your fees. And so you could expend millions of dollars in attorney's fees. And yes, you could have a recovery and have prevailed. But when it comes down to it, you could have actually lost money on the case. Yeah,
0: which is an interesting way for the federal government to get into this because it's a lot of social engineering where they, I think, really wanted American businesses to tune up their agreements and have these provisions to add this kind of oddball term to it to make sure that people are going back after 2016 to look at their confidentiality agreements and try to update those.
1: Well, I think this highlights the importance also to have your employers to have their agreements reviewed by legal counsel every once in a while, just to ensure that it's you know conforming to all of the legal requirements out there because the law is always changing. And you don't want to use the same agreement that maybe was valid and fine five years ago and keep on using it. You definitely want legal counsel to review it and, and update it.
0: Yeah, I think for a lot of businesses – you know, their IP is the central asset of the business, but yet they may have like a legal Zoom agreement to protect it, which right. is almost, you know, craziness that we see that there's some of these agreements and some agreements are for out of state. So, which is a huge problem if you're here in California. Jackie, you've also dealt with that issue.
2: We do. Uh, we have. And, you know, the California passed labor code section 925, which makes it unlawful for an employment agreement to contain an out of state choice of law provision. Um, and so you want to make sure and, and that that applies to all, all employment contracts entered into or modified after January 1st. So again going back to Lisa's point, you want to make sure to just have your lawyer, your in-house counsel do a quick review to make sure that all of your employment agreements are up to date. I mean it'll take the lawyer about an hour to just to just to verify if it's up to date and, and accurate And again, you don't want to be in a situation where you're relying on your your legal zoom, Employment agreement, and you're in protracted litigation for you know two or three years, and incurring millions of dollars in attorney's fees, and then prevailing on the actual causes of action, but at the end of the day, losing on your ability to collect the attorney's fees, you know, because you failed to take that precaution of, of reviewing your employment agreement.
0: Yeah, and one of the things that we used to see a lot more of was that you'd have companies that have operations all around the U.S. and they wouldn't have. A California specific agreement and so after the changes to the labor code uh, now you can't have a California employee if they live and reside here and work here you can't have them under an, an Oregon uh, or Washington or you know Minnesota choice of laws provision if that's where the company's headquartered so right. it's a huge change and what happens is is we've also started to see is a there's a kind of a plaintiff's class action effort that chases after that, too, because if you've got dozens of employees in California, they're all under the wrong agreement uh, with the different states' choice of loss provision. That's a huge problem for law businesses. And these are not the kind of things you need to be dealing with when you're trying to chase after your own IP and protect it if an employee is left and you just you know, trying to deal with these issues. Right.
2: And Dylan, you and I are actually dealing with a case right now where we have an Oregon company with, that's trying to start their business in California. And they hired a California employee and made her sign an um, employment agreement that was trying to enforce Oregon laws. And now she's hired her own attorney yeah. and is suing the company for violation of you know Labor Code 925.
0: And there are probably other employees in Correct. that business that are also under... Um, uh, another state choice of law is provision,
2: and
1: we still receive letters. You know, um, some of our clients receive letters asserting out of state laws regarding you know non competes and uh, protecting confidentiality. Um, but those agreements are not valid, and those choice of law uh, provisions are not valid in California. And so, those need to be updated for those companies. For yeah.
0: Sure. So if you're one of those companies and you realize, oh wait a minute, our IP might be at risk, and you sought to deal with these kind of Issues first it can really slow things down because this type of litigation moves really quickly. Um, you know, part of what you, companies have to do is they have to take uh, reasonable measures to protect the secrecy of the information, which is usually a California uh, confidentiality agreement. And then there's all sorts of other technical measures. So, uh, Lisa, what other kind of technical measures have you come across?
1: Well, you want to make sure that you have both physical security measures as well as technical security measures so for example, you really want to imagine an employee walking from their car, their vehicle to their desk what occurs you know their computers, their phones, all of that um, the lobby, parking garage, security officer in the lobby check and check and sheet video cameras, key card access, and all of that receptionist, locked file cabinets, and you really want to keep a record of all those type of things um, And that's just the physical security aspect. Then technical, you want to make sure that you have passwords. Um, The ability to remotely wipe is very important and to access uh, devices remotely for the company is very important. Firewalls, passwords, all of that and configuring the network. So information is only accessed on a need-to-know basis. So only individuals that need to know that information can actually access it, instead of the entire company. So those are both those those are all really important uh, things okay. to have in place.
0: Yeah, I mean the company doesn't have to operate like Fort Knox if you're not really in one of those kind of businesses where you've got a lot of important IP. But if you do, then I think in today's age, A&H in particular, you need to have some real strong measures in place. Uh, to show that you have taken efforts to protect this because one of the jury instructions the case goes to trial is that um if there's um you get the case in front of a jury you got to establish it's a trade secret and one of the jury instructions is they look at all whether or not this big list of items that have you undertaken this and you don't have to do them all but you have to do enough that Uh, a a jury can conclude that you've taken reasonable measures to protect the secrecy of the information.
2: Right. And they want to know, the jury wants to know, you know, to to prove that that's a trade secret. They want to know what the employer has done to protect this information. And if the employer is just allowing everybody to have access, like for example, you, a receptionist can easily Mm -hmm. access, you know, a pricing list or a customer list, then that kind of goes against that those, those things being a trade secret because here the company hasn't really done anything to make sure that, that information is protected, and also only available to those employees that need that information, you know, to perform their daily job tasks. Yeah. And so that's important.
0: And uh, which kind of brings us to our next point that we'd like to discuss is uh, improving companies' offboarding practices because there's been several different studies. One of us, one of one, one of which was in the Economist um, a few years back, talked about how eighty percent of all data theft occurs internally which I'm surprised the number is, you know, that low, actually. Because right. it seems like, particularly with with millennials like you guys, um, <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, you know, this struggle with who owns what, and they're so tech savvy that, uh, you know, we, we see all sorts of files uploaded to the cloud and to BitTarrents and USB devices. And so um, I think it's one of the really key important parts is to make sure that companies take the time when employees are leaving to sit down with them and talk about your expectations. So Lisa, what's your take on that?
1: I totally agree. I think a lot of times departing employees really don't know about, they don't recall their confidentiality agreements. They don't really know what they are allowed to take and what they're not allowed to take when they leave the company. And I think it's in the company's best interest to set that, you know, in front of them, let them know and really have a dialogue with them in regards to what is a cust- what's considered a trade secret and what's confidential information from that company and let them know that.
0: Yeah. There's so many problems that be headed off early. Right. If you show, look, here's your agreement. This is what you signed. Do you remember signing this? And then they go, wow. Okay. Yeah. I guess I did sign that way back three years ago when I first came on board, but it's really that letting them know. And, um, and one of the other parts I think that comes up in this area as well is BYOD devices. So, uh, Jackie, you dealt a fair amount with computer forensics and BYOD devices. and um, So BYOD would be, you know, bring your own device to the workplace. And my personal take on this is I think it's absolutely a bad idea. So what do you, what's your take on this?
2: Yeah, it is a bad idea because, you, you know, as the employer, if you're, if you're not providing, like, for example, a laptop for your employee to use and bring home, they're now using their own device and you don't have control of what information they're looking at. Um, and what information they're taking, you don't know. Uh, whereas if you have a company owned device that's issued to the employee, you, you have more control of what they have access of and you can kind of, you know, if, if, if in the event litigation occurs, you can take back that laptop or that cell phone and do, you know, a, a forensic, you know, hire a computer forensic um, um, and, and do an analysis to, and do a forensic imaging. To kind of freeze the information and to kind of determine what information has been taken, what was what was copied, what was you know emailed to the employee's private email address, things like that.
0: Yeah, because in these kind of cases, employees leave and we had to go chase after them. And if if they have their own device, it's so much more expensive to go out and get a court order. And then right. we got to go get a, a court-approved forensic neutral to to get their devices and review them. It's just so much easier, uh, given particularly how cheap computers are now. It's like you, I mean, from my vantage, it should be an easy decision to make for most businesses just to make sure they provide the phones, the tablets, the the desktop, the laptop computers for their own employees. Just for that, they can just get them back so easily.
1: Right, and the forensic imaging is really important because. They can tell, you know, certain devices were inserted like a thumb drive or something uh, during the time period right before an employee leaves. And they can't really do that with a personal, you know, BYOD if it's because it could be for personal use. Whereas if it's a company computer, then there's more of an idea that, you know, it's probably the company's information on that particular device.
0: Right. Which kind of leads nicely into our next one, which to talk about, which is when people are leaving and you suspect wrongdoing that. Uh, to have the company's uh, IT vendor or IT staff take a quick look at what happened as they were leaving, which you really can't do if it's one of their own devices. If they, own, If the employee owns the device,
2: you th- can't, there's a you, whole
0: investigative avenue there that disappears. Right. And yeah. then in
2: order to, if you have any suspicion that the company, I mean, that the employee may have taken information, you can't... <clears throat> you can't grab and take their personal device unless there's a pending lawsuit. You need need a court order.
1: Yeah. And that's
2: going to cost money and, you know, time and attorneys can be involved. And and you may just have this little suspicion, but you don't know for sure. But if you have a company-issued device, you kind of check that box immediately to confirm whether or not this this employee has taken information by just, you know, sending the device to IT to take a look.
0: And I think a lot of companies would be really surprised by what they see is that people... Uh, in the last 30 to 60 days before they leave. I mean, we know the data supports that 80% of data theft is internal. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you suspect wrongdoing, I mean, have your IT people take a quick look and then, you know, if it's real wrongdoing, turn it over to a a lawyer with the forensics group to really take a hard look at it. But it's a huge eye-opener to realize that uh, people leave and take things um, quite frequently here in California. So uh, with that... Um, I want to thank you guys. And this has been uh, a good startup discussion on these topics. And if you're interested in listening to more podcasts from us, please turn into our next P- culture podcast. So thanks again, guys. Yeah,
2: thank you. Absolutely.